This morning's verses is coming from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heart of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you to teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with the eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you up, upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful that you're with us for worship. Uh, we've been working through the Psalms together and Psalm 32 uh, this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Father, would you please help us to hear your voice this morning? The voice of our beloved. <laughs> Maybe especially give us strength to hear only your voice during this time. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. David begins in Psalm 32 with almost like an exuberance, right? This psalm, when you look at Psalm 32, it starts almost as like a psalm of thanksgiving, as, as a psalm of thanksgiving would start and does start in other places in the, the psalms. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is, or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the one. Now if you had that statement right there, blessed is the one, blessed is the man, and you didn't have the end of it, what would you put there? And I'm not trying to pull any punches here. I mean, we've seen and read verses 1 and 2 already, but like, what would you put at the end of that statement? Blessed is the one who what? Like, what comes on the end of that in your life? Would you put what verses 1 and 2 put there? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And what, probably what you would put on the other side of that is going to be something that's closely attached to what you have the greatest fear of. The thing that, that burdens you in your life the most, the, the thing that worries you and makes you the most anxious in your life, the, the thing that seems like the biggest problem and issue in your life, or, or this is going to be the thing that you're looking to, it will bring you the, the greatest sense of relief. And you'd say, so blessed is the one who, who receives that. But too often, we can be a people who, who don't know the weight of actual sin, and, and so we don't want to put on the end of verses 1 and 2 uh, that our 
sin is forgiven because we don't realize the, the weight and the goodness of sin forgiven. We don't understand at times the relief of, of confession of our sin before a forgiving God. And so we're too often silent and far too many don't even know or receive the joy of forgiveness and live in the blessing of the forgiven life. And so we have Psalm 32. Psalm 32 gives us a taste of all of this, that we might be a people who are led into being a people who confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Psalm 32 states the blessing of the relief from the greatest problem that is given. And it is given so clearly in verses 1 and 2, isn't it? Three times we have this. We have transgression, we have sin, and in verse 2 we have iniquity. Sin, sin, sin. Like all kinds of sin. Transgression is deliberate sin. It's rebellious sin. It's defiant sin. One author says, picture it as a raised fist against God. I'm not doing that, God. We have sin, missing the mark, a shortcoming. Picture it as shooting at a target and falling short. And we'd like to think that we probably hit the target, but we probably don't even get near it. That's sin. Iniquity, going astray. Again, picture this as taking the wrong road. And so what's the problem according to verses 1 and 2? What's our greatest burden, our greatest issue, our greatest problem, the thing that we need the most relief from? It's sin, all kinds of sin. The scripture is clear, that one author says. Our greatest problem as human beings is not what you probably think it is if you came in with other burdens that seem to be too heavy. Our greatest problem, your greatest problem is sin before God. Psalm 51 did that last week, right? Against you and you only have I sinned. I was brought forth in iniquity. Like our greatest issue is not that we, we just that we sin, but we are sinners. And because we're sinners, we sin. We have issues everywhere. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and which we're all apart. And Romans 3 makes that abundantly clear when it repeats some psalms and says, no one is righteous, not even one. There's, there's no one who hasn't fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 talks about us as those who are children of wrath, follow the prince of the power of the air. All of us have defied and rebelled against God by serving created things over the creator. Have you wanted something more than God? Even for a millisecond? Well, that's the raised fist of God saying, well, this thing's better than you, God, and I'll take it over you. Have you ever fallen short of God's righteousness by either sins of commission, doing something God told you not to do, or sins of omission, not doing what God has told you to do, or doing either of those things with a, a wrong heart and wrong motive, a wrong desire to serve myself, to serve something else other than God? Well, that's falling short of the righteousness of God. Now, here's one from this week for me. Maybe you can identify with. How about grumbling? Not always external, a lot of internal grumbling in my heart. And Philippians 2 says, do everything without grumbling. So I've missed the mark. All have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6 is a great explanation of sin. All have gone astray, like they've gone their own way. Have you ever gone your own way? And, and here's the reality of that, going our own way. It's not because we couldn't see the right way, we couldn't see the road. It's because we could see the road and we chose our own way. Own is a, a particular word there. We think our way is better than God's way, so that's why we choose it. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And what this means before a holy God is that all of us are under God's just 
judgment and holy wrath because of our sin and transgression and iniquity. It's a burden that none of us can ultimately bear. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you should mark iniquity, Lord, who, who would stand? And the implied answer is, of course, no one. Which gets us to why David is so exuberant in verses 1 and 2 when he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression that they can't bear is forgiven. Whose sin that they can't cover is covered. Whose iniquity, who they can't get rid of, is not counted. Like you could see the blessing when you understand the weight of the burden and the problem of sin. What happens in verses 1 and 2 to transgression and sin and iniquity that receives such an exuberant response to say that this is the blessed one, this is the one who's truly happy, this is the one who truly experiences and lives in the good life. What gets that designation? Well, it's because that stuff is forgiven. There's three synonyms of forgiveness. There's three kinds of sin, all kinds of sin. Here's forgiveness. There's three synonyms. The first one is transgression is forgiven. That, that, that is also translated in other places as a verb as, as he's bore or born our sins, our transgressions. So think of Leviticus chapter 16. This is what we would know as kind of like the scapegoat. They would take a lamb, they would pronounce the sins of the people over it, and they would send it on its way out into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people away from them out into utter darkness, never to return again. He bore the sins of the people. Or Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53, 4, the suffering servant, he bore griefs. Or Isaiah 53, 12, he's the one who bore the sin of many. Same root word there. He didn't just forgive, he covered. He put them out of sight. They're, they're, they're hidden. And he didn't just hide and cover, but what does he say? Not counted, not reckoned against the transgressor, the sinner. The iniquity is not counted. That, that remain, reminds us of, of Genesis chapter 15. You remember Genesis chapter 15? Abraham is, is before the Lord and he believes and trusts in God's promise and it was counted, reckoned to him as righteousness, which reminds us here when we look at this word that he doesn't count, that this is a divine gift from God as Abraham. Like he, he received these promises, like his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't he had earned it by his faith. It was just credited to him. Like it was reckoned to him. His faith didn't save him. God saved him, but he was connected to God by his faith. And that's same here. It's a divine gift, not the result of any doing. It is not counted. And if sins, all kinds of sin, is the greatest problem and has an infinitely holy and good and just God's wrath pointed at it, then the greatest blessing has to be that that sin is then removed, forgiven and covered and not counted. And then the greatest blessing has to be what he concludes in verses 1 and 2. To have sin like this, all kinds of sin, removed and relieved. And Psalm 32 just wants to come along and say, yes, that's exactly right. We have three sin, 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 and it's met three times with forgiveness. All kinds of forgiveness for all kinds of sin. And to feel and to know the weight of the problem of sin it seems like a burden that, that people aren't supposed to talk about, right? Like that doesn't make people feel good to tell them that their greatest burden is sin and that whatever they feel is if the greatest burden right now actually be their greatest burden. But here's the, the blessing of that, to know and to feel the, the weight of our greatest problem, our sin before a holy God, enables one to also feel and know the greatest blessing that is offered to us. 
And that's the blessing of forgiveness. But notice what verses 1 and 2 say. This isn't for all without exception. He says, blessed is the one. Or verse 2, blessed is the man. Not all. And we don't have universalism like implanted here, like you've sinned and you're all forgiven and it's, everything is fine. That's not it. So how does one get in on this? How does one get this blessing of verses 1 and 2? Well, I think he kind of starts to show us how we get in on this at the end of verse 2 and then moving into verses 3 and 4. At the end of verse 2, he says, this is one in whose spirit there is no deceit. One commentator says basically no deceit means that we do not try to deceive God or ourselves about our sins. You're just open and honest about the reality of our sin and the reality of our sin before God and what that means. And, and it is a, an atrocious, horrendous reality when we look at it in the real picture. And when that becomes clear, where those are living into verse 2, there's no deceit. So there's no holding back, there's no denying, but a sincere and full ownership of all of our sin before God. That's the end of verse 2. And at the end of verse 2, that David is thinking of confessing and admitting that very reality becomes more and more clear as we move through Psalm 32, and he starts to kind of say that he's talking about confession by kind of a, a biographical sketch that he begins in verse 3. And he speaks of his own life, and he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. His silence his lack of acknowledging and confessing his own sin before God had a tremendous negative impact on David. He says, when I kept silence. Now, he might have in mind a, a, a time in his life like Psalm 51. Do you remember that took us back to 2 Samuel and his sin with Bathsheba and killing of Uriah, her husband? And there was a time there, wasn't there, where, where he had slept with Bathsheba, ordered the murder of Uriah, and then is just living life like everything's fine until Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him. Maybe he has some time like that, where he is, in that time, silent before God. Now, it may not be that same circumstance, but a, a circumstance like it is what he's speaking of here. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Right, this, this could be a metaphor for like some internal devastation, like something like just despondency or depression. Certainly has physical, I mean, even the words, you know, my bones, like brings up some physical things. So he has physical devastation, maybe internal devastation, maybe both of them are included in this when he thinks about this. I mean, like either way, like the experience of, of bones wasting away is the idea of, of like the very foundation and structure that keeps us upright being, being shriveled down to almost nothing. I mean, you can, you can get the sense of the weight of what he's talking about. And the experience of his silence before God, whether bones is, is internal or external or both of those things, here's what he says I had groaning all day long, verse 3. The experience of this silence caused constant groaning, constant misery, constant distress and suffering and pain. He was silent, but he was groaning. Silent in regard to his sin to God, but, but groaning in regard to his sin. And that groaning all day matches what he says in verse 4. Where did this come from, day and night? Your hand, day and night constantly was upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer and I remember in the summers I used to my grandpa would sometimes come and, and pick us up and we'd go work I didn't like that very much because summers are hot 
I wanted to play Nintendo and baseball and other things. I didn't want to go work. But after we'd go work all morning, then we'd, we'd have lunch, and then he'd have a long period of, I just thought he wanted to take a nap, but like, really, he was using a lot of wisdom, because in the middle of the day, in the summer, if you go work, your, your strength is going to be zapped up, you're going to be dry. And that's kind of what David is talking about here. Like, my strength was zapped, as if the, it was wilted. The, the hand of God, which he knew to be also a hand of deliverance, had then turned heavy with a negative presence upon him and had sucked up his energy and his strength and completely just wilts David. And then we get after verse 4, this mysterious word, Selah. Something musical, probably, but seems to indicate in, in some regards some sort of pause. And, and I think that whether that's exactly it's in, in full intent and purpose or not, it is good to take this word and then just to pause and reflect on what he's just said. That misery and distress in his life that were both spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical, are the result of what? Silence before God. And the result of what? God's hand heavy upon him. In other words, what we get from verses 3 and 4 is that there is no doubt in David's mind and in the biblical writing that some pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, some sickness comes from sin, comes from silence and our lack of confession before God. There is a direct link in verses 3 and 4 between David's silence in his sin and his bones wasting away. There is a direct link between his lack of confession and the Lord's hand heavy upon him. And this isn't new to this, this chapter of the scripture. Look in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. This is of Nebuchadnezzar. He was warned of his sin, of his pride, and here's how he responds after being warned by Daniel a year later. He says, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty powers a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. That we know that this was physical and spiritually, you know, working in his life is, is we get in verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. So there's both internal and external suffering as a result of his sin. Or you could look in the book of Acts, chapter 5. You have the, the work of the gospel moving forward. The Spirit is doing amazing things, transforming lives. And you have this interruption of that in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property, verse 1, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself, part of the proceeds from the land. So what's the sin here? There's a sin, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. 
And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. All right, you could say, well, those are some kind of negative examples. And, and we probably say those, are, those were not people of God. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul instructing the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, they have some chaos in their midst. And one of the things that they're struggling with is how they take and partake of the Lord's Supper. So listen to what he says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning of the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice what he says next, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Direct link between their sin and their physical ailments. Or their sin and their death. Or we could look in the book of James, chapter 5. He says, is anyone among you suffering? What should he do? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? What does he need to do? Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Like there's some implications that the sickness is caused by the lack of repentance of sin, a lack of confession of sin. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Like the problem is that you just need the elders. They weren't magical or, or somehow super spiritual there. What's the actual thing that works here? Confession and prayer. We could talk further about Paul's thorn. Now it may not have been the result of his sin, but it kept him from sin. And yes, when we talk about the direct link between physical and, and internal, spiritual, emotional uh, Ill, illnesses and problems and, and suffering and sin. Like we, we also know that in the scripture is Job, right? That, that his suffering wasn't a result of his, or direct result of his sin. Or we know John chapter 9, where the, the apostles, they say, hey, why is this man that's born blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, 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 not that. So we, we know there's not always the case. It is not always the case that someone is suffering directly because of their sin. It's not as simple as to say, as I've kind of jokingly said a few times, like, confess your sins or God will crush your bones. Like, it's not as simple as that. But it's also not as simple as what the medical community would tell you and would conclude to say that all of your issues are only the result of some sort of physical problem or chemical problem inside your physical body. And so what's the conclusion here? Sin obviously isn't always the cause of sickness, pain, misery, and depression, but it certainly can be. And it certainly is at times. All of us are made in the image of God. We are body-soul unities. We're not just bodies. We're not just souls. We are body-souls. We're not just physical beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We are... Physical, spiritual beings, and you can't separate those out. We're not one or the other. We are both of those all at the same time. We are unities, and we are in the image of God. Image bearers, what are they made to do? What is our, our, the core of our being? What's our design? We're made to reflect and resemble the God who made us, so to reflect back to him, his image and his likeness, like little mirrors. We're supposed to show what he's like, 
And what happens is that sin gets into the picture and it shatters the mirror. So the, the resemblance and reflection is all distorted and messed up or covered over. It's shattered so that we're not what we're supposed to be, not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And there is an effect on us, not just spiritually, but physically because of that. If you're not living in your design, it's going to alter how your body soul is doing. And so here's what we can say from this. If you're afflicted or in distress or depressed or in pain or in suffering sickness, you're full of turmoil or any of those things, by all means, I'm not telling you don't go see any kind of medical help or doctor. By all means, see a good doctor who you can trust and listen to them and follow them because God has ordained that as well, right? Go to them for help. But you also need to ask Christian, is this the result of sin in my life that I'm hiding? That I'm not confessing? Do some self-examination on your soul and see if you're not holding something back from God. And because of that, his hand is upon you in suffering. Are you hiding your sin? Are you living maybe in some sin you don't want to leave behind? Are you holding something back and unwilling to confess it before God? Have you been honest with him? Have you been honest with yourself and with others about the reality of your sin? See, what we need to do when we hear verses like this and others that I have talked about is we must not too quickly ignore the spiritual aspect and the spiritual sin in our lives and its impact and effect on us physically and other ways. We need to ask if silence... If we're hiding something, if there's deceit about our sin, and ask if if in the midst of that silence, if we're suffering and in pain or whatever, if our sin is in the cause of that. And and ask God, like, help me see, like Psalm 139, like, show me, God. We need to ask, is God's hand heavy upon us because he's disciplining us? Because here's what one author says, and I think this is exactly right. If David's symptoms are exceptional, and I don't think they're as exceptional as we'd like to be led to believe... His stubbornness is certainly common enough. And at the end of verse 4, there's the Selah. Let's reflect on that thing. Let's think about it. Let's pause there. Yeah, we may not have the same symptoms, but we certainly have the same stubbornness, the same nature, the same core of our being that has a heart of sin. You may not have the same symptoms, but have you felt the weight of sin in your life? Christians should feel that. They do feel that, and when they do, it leads them to cry out to God for relief. That's what David does. Verse 5, the hand of the Lord had been heavy upon him. His strength was dried up. He seems to be in misery, and then in verse 5, it turns. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I didn't cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 5 sees this reversal of where David doesn't hold back his sin before God. He he confesses sin, sin of all kinds here. He confesses before the Lord. It's the the same words that he used in verses 1 and 2 of sin of all kinds. He uses again here in verse 5, but notice how he uses them. He doesn't just say sin of all kinds in general. He says, my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. He owns it before God. And what is he met with? 
when he comes clean, when he is no longer silent before God, when he owns it before God and said, this is mine before you, what is he met with before God? What a verse of hope. He's met with forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but notice the pace of this psalm. It's quick forgiveness. I mean, we've had all this description of sin and its effect in his life, and then we're met with almost instantly, very quickly, this forgiveness from God. All the description of sin and silence, bones being crushed, groaning all day, God's hand heavy upon me, and then he acknowledged it, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's just so quick. In 2 Samuel, we see the same kind of thing. 2 Samuel, he's confronted by Nathan. Nathan says, he tells him the story, then says, you're the man. Like, all this long explanation of the story, and David says, we should get rid of this man. He says, you're that guy. And then at the end, here's what David says. He confesses his sin, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. And it's almost scandalous what Nathan says next. Because of the great uh, offense to all involved here, it seems almost scandalous that Nathan would so quickly say this. The Lord also has put away your sin. I mean, that's quick. How in the world... How did, how, how did we get that quick to forgiveness? How, how did we get that quick in, in Psalm 32? Like your bones are being crushed, then, then the Lord forgave. And at the end of verse 5, here we have that Selah again. That's worth reflecting on. That's worth pausing over and saying, how did we get from this to, to forgiveness so quickly? The weight of sin was so great. It was crushing his bones. The consequence of sin was so heavy. And the forgiveness of sin is so quick. And a tremendous blessing. What got to this blessing of forgiveness? Misery that led to his confession. And there's this unity there between confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. I mean, there's no wonder, reading verse 5, that, that theologians of, of long ago have said different things about confession of sin. I, I listed a few of them. Some of these are early church fathers. I think the latest one is maybe 1600s, right? That the earlier ones are more like 400s. Gregory Nazianzen, he says that confession is a salve for a wounded soul. Origin, the vomit of the soul. There's a picture for you. Whereby the conscience is eased of that burden which did lie upon it. Augustine, confession of sin, it shuts the mouth of hell and opens the gates of paradise. The Puritan Watson said sin is bad blood. Confession is the, like the opening of a vein to let it out. So what's David trying to get us to in verse 5, even by his own biographical sketch, is that you need to let it out. Don't be silent like I was and let your bones waste away under your sin. Instead, confess your sin that you might receive the quick forgiveness of God. Confess it. God is this God who shows himself consistently and faithfully in Scripture as a God who is so quick to forgive sin and iniquity and transgression. And David, he uses the same root word in verse 5 of forgiving the iniquity of my sin as he used in verse 1. You remember that word that was bore or born? The, the, the Leviticus word where the, the, the lamb has got the sins pronounced over and sent off into the outer darkness? Or Isaiah 53, the one who bore the sins of many? Like when we see that word and think about our sin forgiven and born away, certainly in our minds, we need to think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the one who, First Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that in him we have the redemption of our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's the one that 1 John says, in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He's not hiding the reality of our sin in the scripture, and at the same time, he's not hiding the reality of his willingness, total willingness to quickly forgive our iniquity and our sin. And confession of our sin connects us to this God and to his quick forgiveness. In Christ and at the cross is the place where we can see the weight of sin, that it is that bad that God has to send his son to die. And in this cross, we can also see how quick God is, how willing God is to forgive the great weight of that sin by sending his son to die. Right? It says both at the same time. You think about that thief at the cross. Here is one who is so quickly forgiven in an instant. At the cross, we see the links that God is willing to go to to secure great forgiveness for great sinners. Now, as we say this, like, let's not mistake what forgiveness does. Now, we can quickly get into some error here about forgiveness, for, or confession. Confession is not a work that earns God's forgiveness. Now, remember verse 1. Verse 1, he says, uh, verse 2, I guess. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And what did that remind us of? It reminded us of Genesis 15 where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 3 and 4 and talks about that very reality. And what happens there? He says, hey, you know what? Didn't earn anything before God? Abraham anything before God? Nothing. Like, it wasn't a result of something that he did, including his believing. It was just his believing was counted. So who's saved there? Who who got righteousness there, credit to that. Abraham did, and God did it. It, it. Not Abraham doing something to get to God, God counting something for on Abraham's behalf. And the same is reality here. It's a divine gift. Forgiveness is a divine gift. It is not earned even by our confession. It is only given. Or, or think about Ephesians 1.7 again. He's the one who is our redemption. Our confession is not our redemption. Jesus is our redemption. All right? Or we could look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24. That Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24, are justified by what? Not our confession. By His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Like God is putting in bold there. It's not because of you. It's because of Him. That's good news because if it were based on our confession or our amount of faith or something like that, then all of a sudden we would never have any assurance. Did I confess enough? Did I confess without deceit enough? Was I, was I doing it right? Did I use the right form there? No. We're saved by God. It's His grace. It's a divine gift that He gives us forgiveness. What confession is then is confession is an expression of faith. Confession is the right response to a God who is holy with me as a sinner and God as a forgiving God in that place. It's the right response to God as a forgiving God and us as sinful man. And as David, for David, as he sees his sin, verse 
4 and 5, he comes around to seeing his sin. And as he sees God, it's the right response to acknowledge his sin before God. It's the right faith response to the gospel as it expresses that only in this gospel, only in Jesus Christ, can I lay down my sin rightly and in real terms and actually be forgiven because this is the one who bore my sins. It's an expression of faith. It's not a gaining of something before God. It is saying that you are the one who has to give it or it doesn't happen. I like what one commentator said when he said that confession of sin is our yes to God's invitation to be forgiven. There's response. Confession is the open hand that receives God's forgiveness. In Jesus, we have such an invitation. Come and receive forgiveness from me. In him, we have the promise that any who come to him will be forgiven. And in Jesus, we know that all of our sin has been paid in full. Here's the one who went to death to bear our sins and then didn't stay in the grave. Sin has been paid in full for all who will trust in him. In Psalm 32, David is already God's man. And he still confesses here. And Christians, like, we're not doing something, as David isn't doing something to gain and earn something before God here. Christians aren't doing something to gain or earn something from God. But we do have this need, like David in Psalm 32, for this ongoing confession. Right, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says you should pray like this. Forgive us of our debts. There's ongoing confession. He doesn't uh, imagine a life without confession of sin. But it isn't a work and it isn't a condition. It's an ongoing grace from God. Amen. It's an ongoing grace for relationship with God, an expression of our faith in God as we live in life with Him. One theologian put it this way. Confession is not a condition for forgiveness. But those who truly know their sin naturally confess it and in the face of it feel all the greater need for the consolation of forgiveness. And confession and prayer are the way by which God again arouses and reinforces this consciousness of forgiveness. Needed after our falling into sin is self-humiliation, confession, the prayer of forgiveness in order that this faith may again revive and the Spirit of God may again clearly and forcefully bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He continues, inasmuch as sin's presence, which we know, like, sin's presence remains. We still have this unredeemed part of us that's called the flesh in Romans 7 that Paul is saying, I'm awaiting this redemption, final and full redemption of my flesh. Inasmuch as sin's presence remains, and sin always entails some doubt, so if you have any sin, it's going to push in there some sort of doubt. He says, repentance and confession continue to be means by which God restores us to fellowship, and assures us of his favor. And so in other words, Christian, let's not be silent in regards to our sin, but let's confess our sin before our holy God and repent. This is part of God's means to draw us back into close fellowship with him, life with him, living as his children. As Christians, we still might be under the heavy hand of God's discipline at times, but don't be afraid in those places God is treating you as sons. Do what sons do when they're distant from their father. Turn and come back to him and run to him and find in him one who is always willing to embrace the sons that have gone the other way. Like he's treating us as sons. We're safe in Jesus, but he's not going to let us go down a path of of bone-crushing misery without putting his heavy hand upon us because he loves us. And for us, confession does what it did for David. What does he do in Psalm 32? He takes the weight of his sin and he connects it with the quick forgiveness 
of a forgiving God. And what Psalm 32 does is it leaves behind sin in verse 5. It's not mentioned again. It's almost like he, he receives the forgiveness and he just quickly like, let's, let's keep going with this and let's pass it on. That's what he does in verses 6 through 11. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Because of David's bone-crushing experience in his silence, and because there are crashing waves of distress and judgment that would come and sweep over us, he says, let's make sure that we're keeping the lines of communication open with God. Offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Now, this is a, a similar way that he talks about it in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So when is that? When do we like to know? When's the time? When, when, is, when is this time when he's near and, and we can call out to him and we know that he's going to hear us, a time when he can be found? Well, when? Well, when grace is needed. That's when. Like when you understand that grace is needed, that's the time. When you recognize your sin, that's the time. When you feel your guilt, that's the time. When you're in the midst of this suffering and you start examining yourself and you see there's something there, that's the time when God can be found. All of those times. Like, we, could, we could look at this and we could say, when, when's the time that God may be found? Like while there's breath in your lungs? Like that's the mercy of God. You, you didn't earn that. He's keeping your lungs going and your heart beating. You're not doing that. He's doing that. And so in other words, that's his mercy upon you, giving you even more instances and opportunities to find him. Like to turn. So if you're alive, like that's the time when the Lord may be found. Oh, what good news. Like God is ever willing to meet sinners in confession. If they're breathing, they can breathe out these confessions and he's found. So any alive aren't cut off from finding this God. And so the suggestion from verse 6 is, well, then don't cut him off. Pray to him. Offer prayers to him. In verse 7, he says of him, this is one that you would want to call to in the midst of no matter what's going on. That's what verse 7 is. He says, you are hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverances. Deliverance. And I love... In verse 7, just three quick images he gives here. As the, the waters rise, the, the Lord is this, this safe place, a hiding place. Think of like a, a, a mountainside cliff and a cave, and, and the waters and the tide can rise, and, and the hurricane can come by, and yet you're safe and dry in the cave, high above the water in the cliff. Like he's this perch above all of those things, so when the waves come and crash, like you couldn't be taken out. But he's not just this safe place, a hiding place he preserves. And so he's this, this, this cave, this cleft over, but he's also this life preserver. You put it on in the midst of like drowning and you know, like I'm going to stay afloat here. And Psalm 46, one comes to mind when it says that he's this, this preserver in trouble, that he's this one who is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Verse seven also says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. So he's the, he's the perch. He's the, the floating device. He's also the lifeguard who, who wraps us up when it seems like we're drowning and says to us, don't worry, I've got you. You're safe. Everything going to be fine when the waters threaten I've got you and he delivers us up onto the beach and we're surrounded with shouts of deliverance from the community of the faithful there like that's what verse 7 is getting at and that's why I like that he says at verse 7 Selah like this is worth our pausing and thinking and considering the greatness of this forgiveness that we should pray to this God because of who he is and what he is like Selah is a good word there 
what is implied here and what is worth pausing for some reflection is the real reception in verses 6 and 7. The real realization of his own forgiveness. That's how he can say verses 6 and 7. Like in verses 3 and 4, when he was silent, God was not verse 7 to him. In verses 3 and 4, he didn't think, God is my hiding place. God is the one who preserves me in trouble. He didn't think God is the one who's surrounding me with shouts of deliverance, did he? So he hadn't received forgiveness in, in, in a way that God had intended for him. But in verse 5, he confesses and he receives forgiveness and he really received it. So that he can move on to verses 6 and 7 and encourage others to come along with him. So if you're in verses 3 and 4 right now and your bones are wasting away and you're in distress and you're depressed and you think it's attached to your sin, if you're there and you're not in verse 7, then you haven't received forgiveness in the way that God intends for you to receive it. And so what do you do? You keep confessing and you keep praying. That's what he tells us to do in verse 6, offer prayers to him. You keep going back to him over and over again until you see him as verse 7. Like if you feel as if his hand is heavy upon you, you keep going and you just keep praying. And if you need to lay more down that is in there, you keep telling him, like uncover what is hidden inside of me. Use uh, means around me, people and your word to uncover these things inside of me that I might get to the realization of verse 7 about who you are and your forgiveness and live in it. Keep going. Like, Christian, we go to the cross there and we see at the cross again over and over again the weight of our sin and it is more than we know. And at the cross, we should receive the, the weight and the glory and the blessing of our forgiveness in the same place. Don't leave there until you see those things. And so if you're in verses 3 and 4, the cross is the place for you. And at the cross, you remember how quick God is to forgive those who come to Him. How quick He is to give forgiveness to those who confess you remember the cost he paid for that sin to be forgiven. I mean, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he also not with him graciously give you all things? If you're in verses 3 and 4 and you're coming to him, he didn't spare his son. You can know you're going to get to verse 7 if you sit there long enough. David wants people to join him in the receiving of God's forgiveness. So he says, verses 6 and 7, and he continues this push in verses 8 and 9. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which, may be, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Verses 8 and 9, it, it could be kind of him, like at the voice of the Lord speaking here in these eyes, or it could be David. I think either way, the, the voice or the force of this is the same. That before the Lord, nothing is hidden. Like he, his eye is upon you, and so don't be like a horse or a mule. It's, that's a good command. Right? It's like not a lot of positives in that. Don't be like that. And the parallel to this in the structure of this psalm is verses 3 and 4. To be like a horse and a mule is to be verses 3 and 4, to be silent before God. To, to not confess and live a life before God without deceit before Him. To, to try to cover up our own sin. And so what's the implication here? Offer prayer to God. Confess your sin to God. If you feel the, the bit tugging you in your mouth, you can know that this is God leading you in the actual way you should go. And, and it's a good way because this is a God who's quick to forgive you. He, he's not trying to harm you. He's trying to lead you back to life. 
That's what's going on with this bit in the mouth. Notice that it moves here in verses 8 and 9 that the imagery moves from just forgiveness to fellowship. And that's what always happens as well. He's this hiding place. He preserves. He surrounds with shouts of deliverance. And he's with us, verses 8 and 9, as our guide. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, I'm with you in the midst of this. Like again, if we move from what this psalm has been moving through, no wonder we have verses 1 and 2, that blessed is the man who is forgiven. That not only just have forgiveness, but we have fellowship with this God who forgives us. And the conclusion he gives in verses 10 and 11 are interesting. Like he concludes in verse 10 with this mini parable of sorts. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Notice just the contrast, the, the sorrows of the wicked and this love that surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Those are sorrows like verses 3 and 4 kind of sorrows that he likely has in mind. Bone-crushing sorrows. Groaning kind of sorrows. And he says they multiply. Like, have you, if you've had an animal, surely you've known times of this where you're trying to get the animal, like, trying to take care of you, animal. Like, here's food and water. Go to the food and water. And yet they just go the opposite way. Have you ever experienced this? Like, I've, many times, like, stupid cow. Like, this is the place. Like, I'm trying to help you. And you keep running this way. And you know what happens when that happens? Multiple sorrows for, for the farmer or rancher or, or the, and the animal. It's like you now you're getting tired and now you're angry. And now you're jumping fences and you're getting uh, scratched up. Like all these things happen when you won't just go to the good thing I gave for you. It multiplies the sorrows. But the contrast is the steadfast love of surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love. This sturdy covenant merciful love surrounds. In other words, he's saying there's not a place you could go where this covenant love, this committed love wasn't with you. There's not a place you could be if you're in the middle of the waves or if you're anywhere else in the middle of the wilderness where you're not staying near. Like, there's not a place you couldn't be without, you could be without this love of the Lord. This means that you can walk in and experience the forgiveness and the joy of forgiveness in everyday places and the flood-like places. In the great distress and in the things that don't seem uh, particularly distressful. And the key difference in this parable in verse 10 is this word trust. The wicked that have these sorrows that multiply, they trust in something too. Maybe they trust in themselves. Maybe they're trusting in their job. Maybe they're trusting in their family to relieve them of their burden. To, to help them get rid of the this bone-crushing weight that they have in their lives. They're looking and trusting in something but the one who trusts in the Lord is the one whose sorrows don't multiply eternally. The one who's surrounded by the love of the Lord is the one who is trusting in the Lord. It is only through trust in the Lord that forgiveness is ultimately received and experienced. It's not received and experienced outside of the Lord. Again, this blessed is the one who has trusted in the Lord, who receives actual forgiveness. And so for those who trust in the Lord, Psalm 32 is for you. And you need to know that you too can be surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord in everyday life and in the floods. And that's why it can finish with these three really gracious commands. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There's three gracious commands. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. Like the, the one who can live in verse 11 is the one who has received the blessing of forgiveness of verse 1. 
The forgiven don't stay in verses 3 and 4. The forgiven don't stay under the heavy hand of the Lord. They go to verse 5, they acknowledge their sin, and they receive the quick forgiveness of, verse, of God at the end of verse 5. You forgave my iniquity, the iniquity of my sin. And then they go to verse 11, where they're glad in the Lord, rejoicing, shouting for joy. So if you're not in verse 11, go back. Go back again and ask the Lord to show some sin so that you won't be silent about it before him. Confess it, acknowledge it before God, verse 5, and hear thee and receive the forgiveness from God. Notice that in verse 11, sin, sin that's not been yet, in verse 11, it's not finally and fully defeated and taken out. We have no hint that that's done. In verse 11, we have no hint that there's some sort of sinless perfection that has been achieved. But he does say, for those who are righteous and upright in heart, they are to be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Well, who is that? Well, verse 11 is a parallel to verse 10. Verse 10, well, what are the ones who would be glad and rejoice and shout for joy? Certainly not the wicked whose sorrows are multiplying, but those who, what, trust in the Lord. And so verse 11, we haven't gone past David. This is still David here. Verse 11 then isn't for the one who, who hasn't ever sinned in their life. Verse 11 isn't for the one who's fully defeated all sin in their life. Verse 11 isn't for the one who's reached sinless perfection in their life. Verse 11 is for the Davids. Verse 11 is, is for us. It's for those who trust in the Lord. And if you trust in the Lord, you can receive the blessing of forgiveness from a forgiving God. Your sins, our sins might be great like David's were at times. But if you go to the Lord and you put your trust in Him, you can receive His forgiveness and be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. And if David could lead God's people, this people under this old covenant, to these gracious commands at this time in Psalm 32, with all of his mess and all the mess that they were in, how much more should we be led to verse 11? We know not just a lamb who bore our sins out into the wilderness and dark places. We know the lamb of God who bore the sins of the world and takes them away. We know 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We know not just of the, the blood of bulls and goats. We know of the blood of Jesus. Whom God, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 5, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This blood propitiation is a blood propitiation that destroys the power of sin for all who trust in him and destroys the penalty of sin. It takes it out completely. We know him also as not just the one who's the propitiation for our sins, but he's our great high priest who we can come to and we can receive grace to help us in our time of need. We know this is the one who we can come to and confess and he will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. And we know him as one who grants not only forgiveness of our sins, but close fellowship as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Amen. We know him as one who will be present with us always. He will never leave us or forsake us. We know him as one we can trust. And so we of all people have reason to know that blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Amen. And we of all people then have reason to be people who are glad in the Lord, who rejoice, and who shout for joy.
Let's pray together. Lord, we confess to you, like the psalmist, that we have looked at the very clear path that you've revealed to us in your holy word, and we've walked the other way many times. Furthermore, God, we grumble when we walk that path and we don't get the things that we wanted. We are like Israel miraculously delivered, and then longing for Egypt in the wilderness. Or as you say in other parts of Scripture, like a dog returning to their vomit. But God, you've removed our sin, our transgression, our iniquity, and we praise you for that. God, we confess that a lot of us are groaning because of our silence toward our sin and so as famously said once, we want to kiss the heavy hand that breaks us on the rock of ages. We want to acknowledge our sin to you and trust you so that you will forgive us how quickly you would. What a beautiful thought. Thank you for that gift. We ask that you would make it our lifestyle, remove the weight of our sin. And God, as we keep offering our prayers, we trust that you will faithfully and steadily conform us to your image because you are such a good God. And we praise you with our mouths, with our songs, and with our hearts this morning as we gather in corporate worship. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 